You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica Slusser, and before we get started today, I just wanted to let you know that in a couple weeks, we'll be down in Austin, Texas for South by Southwest EDU. While we love the queso, breakfast tacos, and margaritas, we're even more excited to meet innovators, changemakers, and thought leaders in education. This year, we're also a media partner for South by, and we'll be recording audio for a couple of episodes that we'll be publishing this spring and summer. If you'll be there, we'd love to meet up and learn more from you. Tweet us at getting underscore smart and use hashtag South by Southwest EDU, or you can email me at jessica at gettingsmart.com and we can set up a time to meet. I'll make sure all that info is in the show notes and I'll also link to a few sessions we're working on this year. Speaking of South by Southwest, you may remember back in 2015, the conference had a special screening of Most Likely to Succeed, a film produced by Ted Dintersmith. Ted's work as a venture investor put him in the middle of the formation of the new innovation economy. He uniquely appreciates the impact of exponential technology and the future of work. This gave him real urgency about promoting quality education, especially engaging project-based learning where young people build agency, creativity, critical thinking, and collaboration skills. Ted appreciates all the deeper learning networks that the Gates and Hewlett Foundations have supported, including High Tech High, New Tech Network, and Big Picture Learning. His new book, What School Could Be, comes out on April 17th and outlines what he learned from a 50-state tour following the release of Most Likely to Succeed. In today's episode, Tom talks with Ted about his journey to advocating for next-generation education. Let's listen in. Ted Dintersmith, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Great to be here, Tom. Where'd you go to high school, Ted? I went to a public high school in Northern Virginia called James Madison High School. And uh, in a time when Northern Virginia was really different from the way it is today. Was it a good experience? I'd say it was probably typical of a lot of people's high school experience with some some really bright spots and some really challenging spots. Um, but it, like a lot of people, I, I love to ask people the question about the experiences that really shaped them that they had during their school years. And I'd say the same is true for me. The things that stand out were not the courses or classes I took, but, you know, being the newspaper editor or... Uh, you know, organizing a bunch of friends for a certain campaign and, and things that were really out of school where you were inventing or creating interesting things. You know, it's interesting, uh, Ted, that uh, a lot of us, um, when we think back to what you remember about high school, it was something that you produced that you were proud of, right? A, a yearbook or a newspaper, or it was a presentation that you made often with a group that might be um, drama, or it might be in choir, or you remember a, a game that you played in, it was a, a, a performance of some sort, right? Yeah, it's not the things that are real and authentic. Right. So you didn't go far away for college, you went to William and Mary. Um, why? I did, I did take a detour. I, I started, little known fact, I started and spent my first two years at a school in Houston, Texas, Rice University. Oh. And uh, and then I, we didn't have any money. My family had no money, and Rice was making a transition then from going from no tuition to adding tuition each year, and uh, it got more and more difficult. Yeah, it got more and more difficult on the cost front, and I didn't really particularly like Rice, and so honestly, William and Mary was like, uh, you know, I got to go somewhere else. Um, 
you know, I got in, it was in state and they, it was essentially free. I mean, it was tuition right. my year. But was, it's, it's a great uh, public university. Yeah, great oh, it's a great place. But, but the entire year's tuition for me, when I went to William & Mary, 250 bucks for an entire year tuition. And, and uh, why, why physics and English there? Well, you know, I, I was really lucky. Neither of my parents went to college. My dad never didn't even didn't graduate from high school. So they weren't giving me a lot of really good advice. But I just met actually through tennis, a friend in the town I grew up in, who was maybe 10 years older, but had a lot of really relevant experience. And, and he said to me, hey, take things that are really hard and take things that are really different. And he said, yeah, that, that'll be a really good combination. And so I ended up gravitating toward those two things, which are quite different, and um, turned them into double majors and actually turned them into honors theses. I, did, I was the first person at William & Mary to do senior-level honors thesis work in two, two different topics because they were so different. You know, People would say, I want to do one in biology and chemistry. They'd say, well, just do a biochemistry or whatever. They couldn't combine physics and English, obviously. Um, and it really served me well. Um, and you know, first, it was unusual. That was a help. But also, for spending my career in technology businesses, having an, in, an English major as a background was a great thing because I got to write a lot. And I give that, that background more credit for how well I did in business than I, than I give a physics major or a PhD in engineering. Uh, Ted, do you still support undergrad research at William and Mary? I do, and it's been one of my one of my big focal points in terms of my philanthropy. So I approached them, and we're now almost I think we're year nine. We're we're approaching the tenth year anniversary where we support a growing number of undergraduates to do their honors thesis work their senior year. And we, you know, I've given the money to support it, so I've endowed certain things there. But we also crowdsource to get supplemental funds for these students. And you know, 60, 70 students each year get the money to cover the summer for research between junior and senior year, and all of their costs their senior year for their research and some support for the faculty member. And it's it's really been amazing. I and mean, we've got thousands of alums that participate that offer anywhere from 10 bucks to 6,000 bucks. And, uh, they also provide life advice and career advice. Um, so yeah, so it's a big deal. And I, and I'm a big fan of independent research. I mean, for all the reasons, uh, that I think, you know, direct what you do in education, what I do. I mean, it's ambiguous problems. It's student driven. It's, define and create a problem you care about. It's scrambling to figure out what you need to do to solve it. And that's where I learned the most when I was in college was on independent research. And so I sort of paying it forward, have focused on that aspect of things with William and Mary. And yeah. it's been a big, big success for them. You're helping to create experiences that these young people will remember forever. And, you know, a lot of them, I mean, for me, when I was there, I did two lead author, as an undergraduate, two lead author papers in Journal of Physics, Physical Review, which is the most prestigious physics journal. And these kids are doing the same thing. I mean, they're getting published articles as undergraduates in referee journals, um, doing really great independent research. And whether they go into graduate school or go into career or whatever, it's a great launch pad. How did you get to Stanford? <laughs> You're asking me. These are my embarrassing underbelly questions. So 
I got done with William and Mary with this physics and English background, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. And so I applied to graduate programs in physics. I applied to graduate programs in English. I, I was just casting the widest of all nets that that it put charitably, you might say, keeping options open, put, put more realistically, it would be this 22-year-old had no idea what he wanted to do with his life. And I got into Stanford in physics. And I just said, you know, I, I don't know if I want to be in physics, but being in California and being at that place would be I think a great place to be. And if physics doesn't work, they're going to have a lot of other interesting options. And so, boom, I drove out to California, you know, plopped down about a month into it. I, I mean, really a month into it, I said, uh-uh, this is not going to work for me because I'm, I, and this actually informs a lot of my work in education. So it's worth uh, shedding a little light on it is on paper, I had done all these things in my life, you know, as undergraduate, um, high school, whatever, they would say I was going to be an amazing physicist. You know, like if it was a standardized test, I devoured it. Fives on every AP, perfect scores on the SAT. I don't think I ever missed a standardized test question when it came to math or physics or whatever. Uh, you know, lead author papers. You know, I get to Stanford and suddenly I'm surrounded by people that are really great physicists. And I realized that I wasn't going to be a really great physicist. I mean, being able to do low-level problems, quick tidy little problems uh, under time pressure for tests has zero to do with being a physicist. And these people were incredibly creative, conceptual, and they really love physics. And I was, when it came to physics, moderately creative, moderately conceptual, and liked it, but didn't love it. And so, so I just said, whoa, this does not seem like the great way to proceed when it comes to career. And so I, I started looking for other things. I found this program in engineering that was math modeling applied to real world problems. And it just seemed a lot more interesting. And so I switched into that my second year there and went on and got my PhD there. And it was fun and interesting and, and in retrospect was a good thing to have done. What was your, uh, so what was your PhD work in? Well, you know, my PhD is like almost every PhD that's done in America, which is you spend two or three years working on something and you write it up and you pass a committee and maybe 10 people read it if you're right. lucky. And so mine was uh, an algorithm to help people make decisions and choices when they're having to make trade-offs across things that are not easily reduced to the same single metric. And so if you're trying to decide whether you want more vacation time or more money from working a job or, you know, something like that. So it was a very obscure, you know, it was an algorithm. It, it required proofs. It required, you know, formalism. It required some coding to show it would work. And, and honestly, I think it just went into the, that vast waste bin of dissertations that don't do a whole lot other than show that you can power your way through an ambiguous process and public, you know, get something done that people, you know, it ended up in an article and everything, but it, but I, it, this was not a life changing. You know, I would much rather have done what uh, Paige and Bryn did at Stanford than what I did. Let's just say that. Well, but it, in an interesting way, it was pretty good training for venture capital, right? So it, we we both finished engineering degrees in the early '80s, right? When when you were at Stanford, computing was Fortran, right? Yeah. Um, and so we're just at the beginning of the, the information age and to have spent a couple of years with smart people thinking about 
how to make about multivariable problem solving and how to make good decisions in a complex environment. It's actually pretty great training for uh, for trend spotting and in venture capital. Yeah, I, I hope so. You know, but it, but it's funny, Tom. You know, you think back to those days, and, the, and that that was it. I was there in the late seventies and got done in eighty one. I still remember people saying smart research, you know, tenured faculty member saying that, that computers could never beat a, a really good human chess player. You know, it was just like, this is impossible. They do the math and they show the combinatorial complexity of playing chess and all the different moves. And, and it would take more computers and cover the surface of the earth and blah, 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 blah. And you remember, you know, it's just so interesting to think back on what our very smartest people thought right. at that time and then what ultimately has played out. So I'm curious, Ted, if you have the sense, um, you spent more than 20 years in, in venture capital. And for, I guess for both of us, our careers really spanned the information age. Do you have the sense that you got out of school at a rather opportune time and uh, and had the chance to be an investor in in this unique period in history. Yeah, it was it was fortunate beyond words. I mean, it was and and going way back, it was everything was fortunate, you know. So when I was in K through twelve, you know, the amount of my time each day that was allocated to school was maybe fifty percent during the school year for weekdays. I don't remember having homework. I remember having boatloads of time to just run around and do things and invent and create and, you know, figure out what was fun to do. And that, though that era is gone, you know, then I go to college. And as I said before, the tuition was $250 for a year's full tuition at a, at a good college. That era is long gone, as we know. And there were just lots of jobs and lots of career paths. And, and the, to be in technology, which was, again, for me, a bit fortuitous because most people who had a PhD from my program either taught or went to consulting firms. And I, I went, my first job was at a, a chip company in Boston called Analog Devices. And then I ended up at a really early age running their digital business to do fast digital processing, which was really the underpinnings of, of the digital electronics revolution. And then to be in venture up to and through the bubble of 99 and 2000, and then not being a complete idiot with, you know, with the gains from that bubble, you know, actually selling it. Um, those were all great things. And so, yeah, I look back and just say, uh, I, I wish I could take credit for really careful planning. But, but I think most people who are honest about things would attribute an awful lot of, of things that happened for them that went well to just plain good luck and help from a lot of other people. And I, and I benefited from both of those things. So earlier you alluded to artificial intelligence. Do you have the sense that we're now in a, in a new era? Does this, this period in time where code is actually learning from data and, and powering this new automation economy, is this signal something new in terms of success criteria for, for companies and individuals? I think it is, if it's not the most important issue shaping society today, it's on the top five list without doubt. Uh, in my talks, I always try to explain to people, this has been a, an eye opener for me, is I'll, 
I'll ask my audience a question. I'll, I'll sort of explain exponential growth. I'll say technology for five decades has been on an exponential growth curve. And what that means is that the price performance of computational capability is doubling every two years. So I'll say to my audience, if it's doubling every two years, where will it be in 10 years? Now, everybody in these audiences, and this is a lot of audiences and a lot of people, every single one of those people took exponential functions in high school. It's all something we studied. So far, no one has held up their hand and told me the answer. (laughs) I mean, doubling every two years, where is it in 10? Nobody has been willing, nobody's been so confident that they knew that, that they'd be willing to hold up their hand and say 32. Okay, that I find interesting. Then I'll tell them, I'll walk them through 2, 4, 8, 16, 32. That's where it is, 32 in 10 years. I'll say then, so where will it be in 20 years? And, and people will say 64. And I'll say, oh, nope, 32 times 32 is 1,000 and change. Um, and, and so that growth, and that's really true, not just in the mass sense, but in the perceiving the world sense, is that right. we really can't fathom exponential growth. We can't understand that the pace of change isn't kind of steady as she goes, but it's dramatic. And so when you look at artificial intelligence, when you look at, there's a great documentary called AlphaGo that's now on iTunes about DeepMind and their efforts to produce an artificial intelligence program that could beat the world's best Go player. And and what you said is exactly what's happening, right? Is that it's neural network driven. So instead of having to laboriously construct code to go through every possible sequence of things, which is back to the Stanford, you know, data point I mentioned where most tenured professors in the artificial intelligence area at Stanford in the 1970s said nobody could ever beat a computer can never beat the world's best human in chess. Boom, it did in 97. Um, you know, you look at this and you say, if you try to do it structurally, you'll never get there. But they set up DeepMind in a way that it's playing itself. You know, give it the rules of the game. Let it start playing games against itself. It can play millions of games each hour, learn from itself. And this program goes in four hours from being a novice to being competitive with the world's best Go players. They then go on to challenge the world's best Go player and beat him four games out of five in a very subtle, complex, nuanced, intuitive game. Something that 10 years ago, a lot of people would say computers would have never, could never compete right. with. Well, no, I, I think they surveyed scientists at the NIPS conference in 2015 and people still said it, it might be um, 10 years away. And, and in fact, it was about 10 months away yep. uh, that AlphaGo beat the best go player so it, it, even the smartest data scientists in the world um just can't help themselves but think in a linear fashion it's almost impossible to get out of that but then when you step back and say what's this mean yeah you know it's it's if you look at the top 10 job categories in the u.s i mean categories of people that employ several million people or more they will all be largely gone in 10 years. You know, the jobs that remain will require a very different set of skills. Um, but that, and it's not just blue collar jobs. I mean, you know, it's, it's every type of job that is just pattern recognition, doing things over and over. You know, look at the medical field. You know, artificial intelligence is already better than the world's best dermatologist or oncologist or radiologist at diagnosing what they see from the patient. Um, and so when you, 
when you look at that, and that's what drives everything I do. I mean, I'm, I'm honestly, you know, I, I could just be retired and having a great time. And in the last three years, I, I kind of estimated that I have been in a hotel room over the last three years, <laughs> 80% of the time, you know, including weekends, 80% of the time I'm in a hotel room, traveling, going to places, doing everything I can to advance education. I don't ever charge anybody. You know, it's all, you know, out of my own pocket and I'm giving money away. Why in the hell would I do that? And I do that because I think the level of change and the impact is beyond any of our abilities to conceive, but it will be profound and it will drive real urgency. I was one of the few people in my circle that wasn't surprised by the election in 2016 because I had gone all over. I went to all 50 states during the 2015 and 16 school year. So I saw it. I went to all these towns with boarded up stores and shut down hotels and motels. And you know, the jobs that are left, you know, those job reports are very misleading. You know, they exclude people who've given up, but they right, also right. include people that are just piecing it together barely by driving, you know, for Uber or Lyft or doing errands or doing small task jobs. But when those jobs continue to get the bejesus squeezed out of them when they go away or they're just marginalized, what happens? And, and so you look at that, I think there's a lot of reason to say we should be, this is the biggest of all wake up calls. And, and what I really point to is it all comes back to school because if in fact our kids spend 12 years, 16 years, put your smartphones away, you know, memorize low, you know, content, get good at low level procedures, get good at following instructions those are the exact things that machine intelligence excels at. And, and I just scratch my head and say, why wouldn't we want every kid absolutely understanding and benefiting from the productivity that's in, you know, right there in their pocket and, and be able to work in conjunction? Because the missing point about chess or Go or whatever is if you take a good chess player with augmented with artificial intelligence software that can beat either the world's best chess player or the world's best computer program. So the person with machine intelligence used effectively can be dramatically more productive than any isolated solution. And so why wouldn't that be integral in what we do with our kids in school? But instead, it's actually largely put on the sidelines. And if we just keep doing that, millions of kids are going to keep piling up on the sidelines and people that are adrift in society are angry, alienated people that will throw, at a minimum, throw hand grenades into the ballot box. So I see this pattern of innovation, machine intelligence, school, and the future of our democracy as being all part of the same whole cloth. And if we don't get school right, we're going to have continuing sharp bifurcations in the have, between the haves and the have-nots. And the left-behinds are going to be angry as can be. And not clear to me, civil society will hold together if, if we just keep going business as usual in our schools. We both discovered High Tech High uh, as an example of what school could be. Uh, uh, where did you learn about Larry Rosenstock and his work? I... That's a good question. And I, I probably, like a lot of things that I do in education, you know, I, I got to know early in my immersion here, I, I met Tony Wagner. And Tony, I, I think when history is written, people will include Tony in that list of, you know, John Dewey, you know, Ted Sizer. I mean, people that just for a decade in and decade out have been really 
courageous, bold thought leaders when it comes to education. So I I'm, would bet, I'm not, I can't remember precisely, but I would bet that, that uh, if, if he didn't, it wasn't the first person to mention to me, he was like the guy that said, you, get, you need to get out there and see this because it's interesting. Right. Um, to, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but Tony was my um, school district coach when I was a public school superintendent. Uh, R- Rudy Crew, uh, the former chancellor of New York City, uh, was superintendent next door to me and kind of showed me the ropes in the early 90s. And he said, the first thing you have to do is send your principals to Harvard to meet Tony Wagner. Wow. And they came back and said, um, Tony sounds like you, but we can actually understand him. <laughs> so Tony uh, came out once a quarter and we'd go visit a school and then meet with our leadership team and talk about the progress that we were making. And so um, Tony introduced me to Larry Rosenstock, who I, I met in a construction trailer outside of High Tech Eye. Tony introduced me uh, to Ted Sizer and to Debbie Meyer and just uh, opened my uh, eyes to a world that I had not been exposed to as, uh, as an educator. Wow. That's quite a story. Yeah. So he's you know, everywhere as I travel, you know, lots of people, you know, the, the names keep coming up, you know, Ted Sizer, Tony Wagner, Tom Vander Ark. I mean, you've, you've had an enormous impact on education in a really informed and thoughtful way. And, and for that, I'm deeply grateful. But, um, you know, there have just been some people out there that have been doing really important work for, you know, quite some time. And I think, you know, the biggest issue I think we all have is to, to have the rest of the world understand that this is really, really important. This isn't just a rounding error. This isn't, you know, the, the stakes in education are not a percentage point or two on the NAEP test. You know, they are millions and millions of people trusting education to prepare them to have a better life and often getting into adulthood and realizing, boom, that that wasn't the case. You know, I didn't learn the things I needed to learn. I have a lot of debt. I, I've lost all my boldness and my audacity. And, and what do I do? Because, you know, you're not going to be driving Uber cars for very long because those cars are going to be driverless. What attracted you to high tech high when you visited well, you know, e- even before, you know, so I got going on this with education, probably 2011 was when, and it was really an issue around, uh, it was a funny thing, but it was a seminar that my, uh, where my kids were in middle school. And they, they, they sent out a note to parents and they said, you know, we've got a new program to teach your kids important life skills, come and hear about it, which got me to thinking like, wh- why do we need a new program to teach kids important life skills? I mean, like, like I just sort of had, had tacitly and unquestionably assumed that school was about teaching kids important life skills. And yet this was like, whoa, wait, you have a new program for this. What's the deal? And, and I really when I went to it. It was a very disappointing update. It was like, you know, like show kids once a month, you know, the PE teachers would show kids videos of tar infested lungs and say, don't smoke or something. I was like, okay, great. That's not a bad thing, but it's not hardly transformational. And, and as I started to then closely follow what my kids were doing in middle school, I realized that none of what they were doing was related to an important life skill. And in fact, much of what they were doing was antithetical to what they were going to need to have as, as adults going forward. So 
And, and as I thought about, well, okay, this is a big, important problem. And I knew from venture capital how fast automation – I mean, I, I, I did have some appreciation for exponential growth, and I had a lot of history with backing companies that were bringing productivity gains to industry areas, and that really translated into reducing the number of jobs. Um, so I had those pieces kind of running around, you know, like automation changing and, and eviscerating lots of routine jobs, school reinforcing the routine – this seems like a big deal. And I, and I said, well, how can I make a difference? So I actually had my very first instinct was a film. And I, I had seen, and you may have liked it, some people like it. I had seen Waiting for Superman, which I really didn't like. I actually kind of hated the film. And because uh, it was such a downer and it's a kind of, I thought over, so, you know, if you just win the lottery, everything's great. If you don't win the lottery, things are terrible. Teachers are awful. They're in front of the room reading newspapers and just a bunch of things that I felt were cheap shots without real justification. So I said, well, if, you know, if I could play a role in helping a great, inspiring movie come to life, that would be really great. And so I started looking for directors. And it's hard, you know, like, because, you know, I wasn't in the film industry. That was a challenge. But, but, you know, I'd meet some people. Some I just, nothing was working. Some I'd meet and I'd say, I love their films, but they seem like they'd be difficult to work with. Others, I'd say they seem really nice, but their films aren't very good. I'd say the other, the final thing that's really a challenge is it's easy to do a documentary that's negative, that's that mocks people. You know, like a, when you, I, I would encourage anybody if you see a Michael Moore documentary that makes fun of people, keep in mind that's a really easy documentary to make, and it's not a good doc. It's not moving things forward in society, and I wanted somebody that had the potential of being really inspiring. And so I just was calling, it was really an inefficient six month process, but it led me eventually to this guy, Greg Whiteley. Um, three people in the same week said, oh, you ought to talk to him. He had done some not well-known things earlier in his career, but things I really liked. And he just seemed like a great guy. And I, 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 the length of going, I mean, at the risk of going a bit long, our first call, here, here's how our first call went. I said, Greg, I got a great idea for a documentary. Interview expert A, B, C, D, E, F, and G in this order. They will make these logical points. Bingo, people who watch the documentary will really get what we should be doing in schools. And he said to me, not only will I not make that documentary, if somebody <laughs> does, you're going to hate it. I said, oh, okay. But as a venture guy, I like that. As a venture guy, I wanted to back people that would basically tell me I was wrong, that we had so much confidence in their own skills that they were more than willing to say, uh-uh, that makes no sense and here's why. So that appealed to me. And then I said, well, Greg, what do you think about school? And he said, well, fortunately, my kids are in a great school. Everything's going well for us. But I've always been interested in education. He said, and I said, well, what do you think we should be doing in school? He said, oh, that's easy. Longer school days, longer school years, more testing, more drilling, more accountability, you know, uh, more kids graduating and going to four-year colleges were set. And I said, Greg, that is so wrong. I mean, that's exact opposite of what I think we need to be getting at in this film. And so, so a guy with a bad idea for a documentary teams up with a filmmaker with a bad idea about school. <laughs> How can this go wrong? <laughs> but, but what he said to me, which was so important, this is Greg Whiteley, and I love the guy, is he said, point me in some interesting directions. Trust, tell, give me some you know, things to read so I can kind of come up to speed. Trust me to find the story that you'll be excited about that comes to life in a film. And so I sent him off to 12 different places. He filmed a little bit at a bunch of places. He actually loved High Tech High, 
and and one of the re- there were two reasons. What you, you know, if you're filming, and they filmed for two school years, so it was a two year shoot. You know, six hundred hours of footage in total. If you're going to do that, you know, San Diego looks awfully good compared to Chicago or Boston or something like that. So the other thing that really helped with High Tech High, I mean, it's visually great space, which you can see in the film, but their environment there, they have so many visitors coming in and out of classrooms that when you had jammed a film team into there, the students didn't really notice. And most places you really run into issues where people play to the camera. You know, you're in there filming and suddenly it's a very different experience from what the real experience is. And so that was really important. And then, as you know, from the film, they just caught a break. I mean, they found two really interesting students. They found a a story with a beginning, a middle, and an inspiring end. It had its plot turns. And so what he did was he captured a great story that sort of showed people a very different view of what education could be. But the other thing he did that I think was hard, but he delivered on, is it wasn't one of these stories that were just kind of hanging out there and like, that's a nice story. He embedded it in the important concepts. I mean, the 10 minutes on the history of education is brilliant. The treatment of artificial intelligence and what that's doing to the economy and to jobs, that was really great. And so when you look at how he told a story that's riveting, but put it in a bigger context so that people really understood what the stakes are, I think that's why that film has been such an enormous success. So after the film and your 50-state tour, how do you think now about the purpose of school? Well, I, I, and I'll tell you, talk about it a little later. I've got this book coming out. But, but one of my chapters starts off with, you know, like I used to think that the purpose of school was to help children develop their potential. I mean, of course, that's what school is about. Find things you're good at. Get the positive reinforcement and instruction and experience you need to build on that and launch kids into lives of purpose, lives that will be happy, lives that will let them be productive, contributing citizens. That's what I used to think. I would say, sadly, but tragically, most schools in America today revolve around ranking students' potential, not developing it. And they rank it on these very artificial measures that have nothing to do with life prospects, nothing to do with important life skills, and they give outsized advantage to the affluent. And so that contrast, that contrast between schools that really get it right, that do develop students' very distinctive potential in creative and differentiated ways versus plopping kids down and saying, you've got to do the same thing every other student's doing in the country so we can rank you. And when you ask, when am I ever going to use this as an adult if we're honest with you, we have to tell you you're not, you know, that's a large swing. And as I said, we could play small ball in education and try to get NAEP scores up by a percentage point instead of dropping by 0.3 percentage points. Or we can play for the big game, which is to launch kids into a lives that matter and giving them the feedback that they can make a difference instead of telling most kids that you're somewhere between okay to bad on standardized measures, that when you look at those questions, and I always encourage people, go back, just go online, take a few SAT practice questions, and ask yourself, do any of these things matter to me as an adult, or is this more of a glorified, academicized version of crossword puzzles and Sudoku? And I think an honest, hard look at that says, this is crossword puzzle and Sudoku land, but we 
we impute outsized importance to it. And we tell so many kids how limited they are on the basis of measures that really should be viewed as fairly inconsequential. It's interesting. Um, when I think back over the last 25 years, There was, um, when we started the Gates Foundation, we got a lot right. We picked um, high tech high and new tech high and big picture learning and expeditionary learning, um, all of the great deeper learning networks and tried to help them grow as fast as possible. Um, but uh, we also backed efforts to add measurement to education and those became known as No Child Left Behind. This... Uh, you know, the last 25 years can be characterized by standards-based reform uh, to measure, to uh, test, to hold to account. And it it is remarkable in retrospect how, well, number one, how uh, many of us thought these two ideas could go together, uh, authentic education and the infusion of, uh, of technology and measurement. And, and two, how... Uh, profound the negative um, and unintended consequences were of trying to drive that synthesis. And, it, you know, as you know, these are very complicated issues. And to, and to be fair, you know, there's sort of the core early years where you're developing learning how to learn skills. And I think you can do a good job, maybe a, a very effective job with a standardized test of getting a sense of whether a kid is more or less on par with their core reading skills, with their math comfort and fluency in those early years. And, you know, flagging situations where lots of kids are are falling off the rails and, and being thoughtfully, you know, intervening with them, with kids in those situations. Because, you know, if a kid's in eighth grade high school, they can't read beyond the third grade level, it's over. Um, so I get that and I understand that. But turning them into the you know, these enormously high stakes things that, that actually can hound you, you know, in the, right. the book I wrote with Tony, we, we relate the anecdote about a guy in his forties who's interviewing as a hedge fund manager and they ask for his SAT scores. You know, he's got 20 years of fund management experience with a track record and they want his SAT scores. And so we've, we've glorified them. And I think the other thing we've done is we've, you know, you, you look, the weighting on all this is 50% verbal, 50% math, ACT, SAT, you know, you look at standard of learning tests in states, you look at graduation requirements, everybody feels that the math component is absolutely essential. When you look at the math grade seven through 12, it's, it's largely irrelevant. And I say this as a PhD in math modeling from Stanford, it's largely irrelevant to what engineers and scientists do. I go after the, 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 the lunacy around high school calculus. And, and I, every day, you know, just last week I heard this radio report and they're quoting the, I think it was the office of civil rights in the department of education, bemoaning half the high schools in the country don't give their kids a chance to take calculus. I spent three years trying to find an adult in America besides a high school calculus teacher that does an integral or derivative by hand. It, no one does. You know, this, right. this is like teaching people. We say we want kids to be able to drive a car. So let's have them as a very important gateway that will block them from going on in life, have to memorize all the parts of a carburetor. And nobody even stops to say, well, wait, modern cars don't even have carburetors. Yet, you know, you go to colleges, you can't even major in business at a lot of colleges without passing calculus. 
I mean, that makes zero sense. Other than when you step back and say, all these little math things that we throw at people that we we place an enormous amount of priority on that, that no adult ever uses, it, it's perfect fodder for standardized tests. You know, they're nice 30 to 60 second questions. You can bundle 45 to 60 of them in a section. You can play around with the difficulty. You can get the bell cur- curve of distributed results you want. They're just great material for standardized tests. But who? I mean, you know, I told you before, you know, audience after audience can't take doubling every two years and tell me what happens in 10. Nobody uses functions. Nobody's solving simultaneous equations. Nobody's using the quadratic equation. Nobody, nobody does logs, really. I mean, you know, there's a whole bunch of this stuff that is just telling people in many, many ways you're deficient, you're not smart, you know, you're, you're limited in your capability. And I say, like, if it's something important in life, you know, like if somebody said, we want to make sure every kid has basic financial literacy capability, I'm like, go for it. Great. Um, but, you know, stuff that very few or no adults ever use, you know, come on. You know, like we can do so much better than that. And, and there actually is an enormous amount of creative and conceptual and fun math that we could be teaching kids that is important in life. And it largely gets lost in the shuffle. Because once it's creative, once it begs for multiple different creative solutions, you can't standardize test it. Ed, you have a new book coming out this spring. Uh, Will that include some pictures of what you think uh, good learning, powerful learning uh, could be like? It will include, yes, absolutely. It will. You know, so I traveled for a year. I took the trip really seriously and I hired, this is one of the best, sometimes I, I make really bad decisions. I make a lot of bad decisions, but every once in a while I stumble into a good decision. So I'm going to travel for nine straight months. Uh, my director did the film uh, on Mitt Romney called Mitt. Uh, so Greg, for most likely to succeed, did Mitt. He said, you want to talk to these guys who did all the advanced campaign planning for Mitt Romney. They might be able to help you with this trip. So I brought them on to help me plan the trip. And so for nine months, it was like every day from breakfast till 10 at night, I had great meetings. And, you know, I got to a bunch of governors and state legislators and commissioners of education and school board members. But I also got to a lot of parents and teachers and students. I mean, a lot. And so it was this complete immersion. And there were so many remarkable things I saw. And so... So I wrote a book about it. And, you know, the subtitle is Insights and Inspiration from Teachers Across America. And so I distilled down thousands of things and I tried to organize it into coherent chapters. And so it's there's a chapter on K through 12. There's a chapter on uh, college. There's a chapter on I call it prepared for what? You know, what's the goal of school? What are we preparing kids for? I, I have. There's a chapter on I call it doing obsolete things better. You know, the policymakers, the funders who take a 20th century model and say, let's just keep, let's just do better at that. Higher test scores, more kids graduating, more kids into four-year colleges. That would be great. And, you know, it won't be great, but they have good intentions and people need to understand that. And so, so I've got this book and I really, I have generally one blow you away story from each state and they fall into these coherent chapter clusters. And the early feedback has been really great. So I'm super excited about it. And, and, but it's just this broad sweeping look at education in America that does connect the dots between what we do for and to our kids in school 
And what's going to happen when they're adults later in life and why civil society, why our democracy hinges on getting school right? Ed, where can people learn more? Well, it's, you can pre-order it now on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And, um, you know, our release date, I think, is mid-April. Um, but if you just Google Dinter Smith, what school could be, uh, you'll find uh, the links to, you know, to it on Amazon. We got a little bit of a write-up. It's got a great cover. And, uh, you know, but it's interesting, right? I mean, I got endorsed. I'm, I'm a business guy. I mean, I've got great blurbs from both Lily Garcia and Randy Weingarten from the two major main teachers unions. I got former dean of school of education at Stanford and current dean of Harvard Graduate School of Education. I got a very conservative governor in North Dakota and Doug Burgum, who's doing great things in education, and I do a lot to help them. And Maggie Hassan, who I think architected in New Hampshire, um, had one of the most consequential rethinks of education um, from 19, uh, yeah, blurring on my years, but um, uh, 2008 to 2016, they just did remarkable things. And so I've got this great kind of bipartisan cross-section of people who have read it who think people need to hear this. And it's definitely not without controversy. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, Tony Wagner's reaction was it'll inspire you and it'll, it may well infuriate you. Um, and <laughs> Where could people learn more about the film? Oh, the, well, most likely to succeed, you know, we're still running with that. We just offer, offer two new things with that that, are, that people might find interesting. And so, you know, for two years, we did just community screenings. Um, we now offer that through a group called Tug. So any school can buy the film and use it as many times as they want here, there, and everywhere for 95 bucks. And we're really open. I mean, I've, I've done, I'd say, 25% historically of the 4,000 screenings we've done have been pro bono. If, I mean, if any school says, hey, we have a budget issue, I just lay, say, great, you know, we'll support you because I'm not doing this to make money. I'm doing it to help, help school leaders affect change in their school. We, we're just reduce, re- releasing what we call the Committee of Ten offering. People, have, you know, the one thing com- people have complained to me about, and I understand it is, like, why isn't this film on iTunes? Why isn't it on Netflix? Why, why, why? And I did turn down Netflix after Sundance. But I, I believe, and I still believe, that if 10 of us in a school watched this film at home on a laptop, not even knowing who the other nine were, you know, nothing would change in that school. It's when you bring people together and they have thoughtful discussion. And as you know, the film doesn't say you need to do X. It really invites you to take on and make up your own mind on critical questions. And so we have this thing we call the Committee of Ten offering. And so for 15 bucks, you can rent the film for a month, but you rent it and could share links to it with nine of your friends or colleagues. And so 10 of you can watch it for a grand total of 15 bucks. So that's really accessible, but it's again in the spirit of bringing people together. And then we had this thing we have on our website. That website's you can just Google most likely to succeed documentary, but it's www.mltsfilm.org. And we have this thing we call the Innovation Playlist, which is really based on what I observed as I traveled for a set of steps. If a school is just kind of stuck in the last century and they want to get going, what can you do? And so we say, you know, like bring the film to your school and get people energized. You know, work with uh, Ed Leader 21 and Battelle for Kids now and Build community consensus around the profile of your graduate. And then we are, I'm a big fan. I'm a supporter of a bunch of things going on at the D school at Stanford. So we say shadow a student, you know, 
you will, it, but shadow a student from the perspective of, okay, we in building a profile of a graduate consensus said we want our kids to be great collaborators, which most schools say, shadow a student, but pay attention. Where are they getting reinforcement? Where are they becoming better at collaboration? And your whole list of critical skill sets and mindsets, keep that as your checklist as you shadow a student. And then a set of things like, you know, try a Socratic seminar, try a project, share your learning and, and working with the High Tech High campaign on that. And so it's a you know, it's a playlist. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be things you can put in whatever order. You can drop, you can delete. It's it's a resource. We're encouraging people to try it, but not dictating. And just saying these things, if you kind of incorporate these into your daily rhythm of school, you'll slowly make change. And, and the best way to make change, I think, it's small steps lead to big change. You know, if somebody just whomps down on a school and says, everything you did yesterday has to be completely different today, you know, that just leads to a lot of people being ticked off and no real change. But if you invite the teachers that are really interested in sprinting, you say, we want you to do it. Try this and tell everybody else what it was like. And then maybe a month or two later, you ask some more teachers. You're, okay, these five teachers tried a Socratic seminar. Remember how enthusiastic they were? Remember the students we brought into the faculty meeting who said it was like, whoa, so much better than normal who this month will try Socratic seminar and just those little things to sort of break up, you know, the, the habits we formed over 30, 40 years of school and start introducing new and different ways for students to engage in their learning. I think that's a really powerful innovation driven model for change that contrasts with what we've done in education in our country for years, which is top down central planning change. And so, so we're excited about that. There's one at the, uh, you know, one last thing I want to make a point of that I think every this I want to triple underscore this for your listeners, which is, you know, I feel like people have been really enthusiastic. I'm, you know, feel like people I meet say, yeah, yeah, this is really interesting. We should do this. A group in China did a screening of most likely to succeed online, and another group in China translated the book I wrote with Tony, uh, which we also called Most Likely to Succeed. They translated into Mandarin. They had 25,000 people watch the film, and in two hours, they completely sold out the 5,000 copy first printing of the book, China. And so I think what U.S. schools need to realize is it's not okay to say, that's really interesting, we should do this, because other countries are going to say, that's really interesting, we're doing this. And schools in the U.S. need to realize that machine intelligence is not going to say, Oh, it's taking schools a while to change. Let's slow down. You know, it's relentless. It's going to advance at a blistering pace no matter what our schools do. So the urgency around change in our schools is sky high. And these 10-year-old kids, you know, you look at them and they look at you and they have trust in their eyes and they just know adults are making good decisions on their behalf. We need to do that for them. We need to make those good decisions. Ted, we appreciate your uh, sense of urgency. If you haven't seen the film, go check out Most Likely to Succeed. Uh, the book with Tony is great, and we all look uh, forward to your book in April. Ted Dintersmith, it's been a treat to have you on the Getting Smart podcast. Awesome. And, and I'm going to just say one more time, you've been a hero in the field of education, Tom, and there's so many great things that have happened because of your work. And so, you should be really proud of it, and we're all deeply grateful for, for the contributions, the many contributions you've made. Well, that's nice of you to say. Thanks, Ted. Uh, onward and upward. 
Thanks to Ted for taking time to chat with Tom. And a reminder, if you're headed to South by Southwest EDU, let's meet up. We'd love to feature your voice in the podcast. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe to the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes so you don't miss out on any future episodes. We'd also love if you rate us. And for more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Jessica signing off.